0: More often than not, data is described as a goldmine. Companies produce and amass a ton of data, but whether that data is collected, analyzed and used is another matter. For Invigo, a UAE-based car leasing and subscription startup, data has played a crucial role in driving the company's decision-making and success. To better explain how Invigo uses its data, I spoke with Pulkit Ganju, co-founder and director of data science. Hi, Kitt, Welcome to the WAMDA podcast.
1: Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: So let's start off by uh, talking about Invigo's startup journey.
1: So we met Islam and I, uh, my co-founder and I, we met about four years ago now, Jan 2018 or so. And uh, we discussed the idea, you know, very broadly. We looked at the numbers of uh, what the supply side looked like for car sales back at that point in time and uh, what the consumer options were simply to access a car right and uh, when we looked at the numbers the opportunity seemed massive in terms of uh, a big gap between how consumers got a car and what were possible flexible options to kind of get a car and uh, you know it's very easy to get a car if you have the cash lying around or if you're accustomed to financing and have a good credit score and have the documentation in place, six months worth of bank statements and whatnot. But it's a very different story if uh, you don't have those things. You've just started working, you don't have as much disposable income and uh, it's not, let's say, a very socially inclusive or financially inclusive uh, process to get a car, which is very important for you to, you know, drop your kids to school, uh, go to work every day, you know, do basic chores. And that was the initial kind of um, thesis behind starting this, that there is no accessible way to, you know, finance your car or get a car. Uh, Only 15% of the population in MENA PT, uh, which is MENA, Pakistan and Turkey, have their own private vehicle, which is much lower than the rest of the world. At the same time, if you look at the urban population, only 33% of the urban population has access to public transportation.
0: That's shocking to me, the fact it's only 15% given... I mean, how many cars do you see on the roads in, in all the big cities in these countries?
1: No, that's true. I think it's a, it's a sample bias. Uh, the people we hang around or, you know, our groups of group of friends, they might have more cars. Or when we go out on the roads, we see that there are a lot of cars. But uh, it's about what could have been. It's about who's not been able to access. And uh, it's about the opportunity loss, less that, you know, um, necessarily that, you know, OK, these 15 people percent would have had a better time getting a car from us so there's still a massive segment of the market that's completely untouched untapped and that's what we're going after
0: so what is the invigo solution how are you making access to mobility more inclusive
1: there are a couple of things we do firstly uh you pay for your car on a month-to-month basis so whenever it's not convenient to you the monthly payment does not work out for you you can easily cancel we even have digital wallet which stores credit. So let's say you use, of course, after you finish the first month, if you use, let's say, half the month worth of uh, days, you know, that's all credited back to your wallet. So you can just come back and use that credit again. Um, Secondly, everything is kind of included. So your service, maintenance, warranty, all of that is inclusive. So there are no surprises in terms of, okay, you know, my car broke down. Now I need to take Uber or Kareem for the next few days, or I need to go to the maintenance workshop and whatnot. You know, tires and batteries are something that insurance doesn't even include ever, right? And all our cars, of course, come with that service and maintenance. So you don't have to worry about the normal wear and tear of your tire and battery, which you have to change every couple of years or so. So we've kind of taken out the unpredictability of your finances. We've taken out the long-term burden from your finances. And uh, we've given you this monthly access that, you know, you can change your car every month now of course that's more for someone uh with, with the luxury to want to change every single month uh but it gives you flexibility still right let's say your family is coming down uh, to uae during the winters right and you know you're gonna need a probably bigger car right and uh, you know if you're not going to be here for the summers you know your kids are not going to school you could go down to a smaller car or even you know opt out for a month or two you know it's designed for flexibility and financial freedom.
0: So how does this differ from traditional leasing of a car?
1: So leasing, at least in our region, is very close to how financing work. it's not, it works. It's not like how leasing works in Europe or USA, wherein you have approximately three months worth of uh, down payments that you have to make upfront. So that's a massive upfront cost when you think about, again, you know, what are we trying to solve? We are taking away those massive upfront payments, right? The second thing is uh, leasing ties you down to a contract period let's say you're in a three-year lease and if you were to let's say cancel in the first year itself right you'd pay three months worth of penalty on top of the deposit that you've already lost right so it's not really flexible it kind of ties you down of course there are conveniences that you know registration for that he's the first year as far as i'm aware is is covered um you know the basic insurance is covered um and you have a replacement car and whatnot but Again, when you talk about financial freedom and flexibility in payments, that does not exist.
0: So when you guys launched in 2019, the world was fine. And then uh, a year later, no one was allowed out. So what happened to your company?
1: It was it was crazy times. I mean, not just for us, but the rest of the world, especially being in the mobility sector. So, you know, whenever we introduce ourselves and we tell people about the story, we go like, you know, we launched XYZ, uh, did XYZ, you know, raised a bunch of funds, hired a lot of talented people, survived the pandemic, uh, launched two countries. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was something I think that was good for us to go through. Uh, I know I know it sounds a bit crazy right now, but what we saw and what we've gone past, it almost gives you that confidence. You know what? We went past that, so we can kind of survive anything. At that point in time, of course. Uh, Because we're a subscription business, so we weren't as hard hit as, let's say, airlines or, let's say, taxis or, you know, ride hailing because people were still on subscription. And what we did back then was uh, for all our customers we made during the lockdown phase of a couple of weeks, at least in UAE, that's where we were present back then, we made cars free up to 50 kilometers a day so that people still keep their cars for emergencies. So, of course, that created a lot of goodwill. So, when the lockdown was lifted, a lot of Almost everyone came back to us. That was one. We also introduced lower mileage packages and, of course, reduced pricing because, of course, cars weren't depreciating as much. Even though the lockdown was lifted, uh, people weren't able to kind of go everywhere without as much ease. There was still work from home and whatnot. I mean, we moved on to work from home internally. It was a bit of chaos in the beginning. You know, I'm sure you felt the same back-to-back Zoom meetings all day long. <laughs> you know, there's no breather for even a coffee or water or lunch, but, uh, but but we went past that and I think that's where you really saw the team coming together. I think uh, the, the the drive and the grind, you know, it all came out it's beautiful.
0: It, it sounds like you guys have clearly made it to the other side, but I'm interested to know how the business was affected when everybody was working from home, when people were not allowed out. I mean, did you think we're not going to survive this? Did you have enough cash in the bank to, to be able to sustain yourselves throughout it? Tell me a bit more about what you guys went through as founders.
1: Right. So this was, again, you know, as founders, you're almost always fundraising and always trap for cash in a way. So we'd, we luckily already started fundraising process and we had almost closed it down just when the pandemic hit. So we actually announced our round in April 2020, which was like peak, peak, peak pandemic right so and the first thing that we did was we got those funds in and uh, we drew out these i think there were around nine scenarios which was a combination of two things one was our burn rate uh, and uh, of course how long we can run the company and the second part to it was growth so we came back and said look if we want to grow or, or if we if we burn this much and extend our runway to this much time frame this is how much we're going to grow so we came up with all those scenarios and all those scenarios were also kind of dependent on the macro situation, which is when the pandemic or when the lockdowns get lifted, when things come back to normal. So we we literally mapped it all out. Everything was planned out from day one. So every one or two months we were looking at, okay, this is how much cash we have, this is how much growth we got, this is how the market is and this is where we're going. So we kind of lost overnight half our business, half our revenue. Cause of course, people didn't need cars, right? Even if you're giving cars out for free, they have to park it somewhere. I know there was no parking fee back then, but you know, you just have it, right? So we lost half our revenue for, like o- overnight, almost. But since then, we're around 10 times that or so in terms of size and revenue.
0: Is that because you guys expanded to Saudi? Is it because of that? Or is it because consumer habits have changed entirely?
1: It's a combination of both, so initial effect was consumer habits kind of changing because people are now realizing that why have a depreciating asset lying outside, which I have no idea how much I'm going to use, um, I don't know what my own disposable income looks like, I don't know what my you know future income or stability looks like, so why have something that's not going to appreciate over time, it's not like a house, it's something that you can rent out and we many times mostly at least not depreciate as massively, you know. The flexibility of having your own car at your own terms, not having to use public transportation was obviously massive back then. We launched, Saudi was a bit more strict around that time from the lockdown perspective. So we launched, launched peak pandemic, I would say. Um, and of course, for the first quarter, it wasn't uh, as easy. But right now, Saudi is massive for us. It's It's growing super fast.
0: I'm keen to know how your investors reacted when you said you're going to launch in Saudi, peak pandemic.
1: So... For a lot of UAE startups, because UAE has a lesser population, it's the obvious next market. So it didn't come as a surprise to them, very frankly, that, you know, it's, here's another startup, startup wanting to go to Saudi. I think, uh, if anything, if you ask them today, I think they're they're probably proud of us and are also happy at the same time about the investment that they make. Because a lot of startups want to enter Saudi, uh, but only a few can first survive and then start growing there. So it's a very different world from UAE. And, and of course, they weren't surprised that we wanted to enter that market. They were just like, you know, figure it out, do your thing. I think uh, it's good to have investors like that. We're not kind of overly questioning your decision. I think uh, they invest in the founders and the team. So we felt that kind of support from them also, like, okay, you know, you guys have the funds now, go out and figure things out. And, you know, we had that freedom too. So yeah, I think I think right now they're probably happy with our decision back then.
0: How easy or difficult was it to figure things out in Saudi?
1: Extremely difficult. Um, my co-founder Islam, he's actually in Saudi. He's moved there. He's got his own Invigo card there. He's you know, got his own apartment there now. But Saudi is a very difficult market to crack. Um, there's a lot of local nuances. There's a lot of uh, differences in mindset and how people think about anything, right? Um, our own understanding of Invigo has changed and improved since launching in Saudi at first we were thinking like you know it's um, sexy to kind of have a different car every single month it's fun and exciting to have that convenience and flexibility uh, but when you really go down to the masses and you know you want to make cars more accessible then you realize that you know people are happily going to commit to you for 10 years if you can make it financially viable to them right just just as an example so that kind of led to a lot of like a rabbit hole of research a that rabbit hole of testing, uh, delivering products, so much investment in the first few, few months. But now, again, you know, because we did all that groundwork early on, understood the market, uh, found our message market fit, uh, we are where we are today because of all that work that was done, that had to be done.
0: How different is the Saudi customer compared to the UAE customer? What are they after? Um, what does the data show?
1: I think uh, the market in general is different in terms of pricing also. For example, in UAE, because they are more financial... There's there's better financial inclusion, I would say, uh, and uh, institutions are slightly more mature in terms of what you can do. For example, in Saudi, if you're an expat, you cannot get a bank loan. And then women just started to drive, and you know, not just. I mean, it's been three, four years or so since, but that's a massive. Like half the population was kind of, un, you know, not accessing cars before, so. That's one thing, and the majority of our customers are, you know, from Saudi, um, as opposed to UAE. We have around seventy-five eighty nationalities uh, of customers, so it's very different market. You know, it's very different to what they prefer in terms of cars. Um, the pricing is also very interesting there. Like I said, because there are less options, we were able to do a lot of interesting things to our technology to kind of get the best price out to consumers. Here, it was not as I would say challenging
0: you're the data guy at invigo i'm interested to find out more about how you guys incorporate data into not only your decision making but generally and how it shapes the business
1: of course i mean you know we've been collecting all sorts of data uh, from supplier side consumer side uh, external data always scraping understanding you know what's happening and uh, we use it for a lot of things you know manager risk. For example, you know, we have our own insurance product that we launched about a year or so ago. We have, um, we were very accurate in pricing cars. We've done a lot of, let's say, price sensitivity analysis that allows us to know what price points drive, what kind of utilization rates, um, what's important for the market. So, you know, each action a consumer takes related to InVigo from the point they see and to the point, the checkout or not or subscribe or not. And even after that, it's being tracked. So we're always working on how do we kind of recommend cars better? You know, how do we drive value back to consumers? Um, And essentially set up cost structure that creates massive savings so that you can drive that value back to the consumer. And of course, you know, reinvest in your own growth. I think that's the kind of thesis behind the whole behind everything we're doing. Set up a cost structure that drives savings back to consumers. And if you're doing that, of course, you know if you look at Amazon, what they did, right? For them, the strategy was simple, right? Just pour a bunch of money, become loss leaders. Uh, eventually, once it becomes a habit, people keep coming back. So we're not going the loss leader path, but we are figuring out kind of how do we use tech to just drive value back, be it through convenience of service maintenance, roadside assistance contract, uh, be through the fact that you can just opt out of the car at any point in time. And, you know, it's up to us how we manage that asset eventually. Um, So, yeah, it's all across the board. I I try to, I want to move towards a model where data is more like a self-service model, where even today our customer service team uses their own charts and dashboards. Our suppliers are now in more of a habit of looking at data and numbers and you know, where's the market moving what do we need to do next not just look at okay what happened in the past and you know, what we did well or wrong of us that's important but what we do next is also you know the forecast is also very important
0: all these data points that you collect is this all aggregated to give you an overview of the wider landscape or do you use it on a per customer basis so when you're talking about price structure is this data aggregated to, to kind of get a, a sense of what the entire market is like and what would work for the whole market? Or are we at that stage where we know this customer, if you give them a 5% discount, they're gonna go and take out this car?
1: In terms of conversions, we do the latter, wherein you know it's highly targeted, highly personalized. Uh, we've built a lot of tech and kind of capabilities that allow us to do so, You know, wherein we think that we can get like an uplift from from doing a certain experiment, we, we we run a lot of experiments. I don't know. There are very few apps or companies out there probably releasing as much as we do. Uh, in fact, you know, we're trying to calm down a bit and you know, lower the frequency of our releases so that you know, it's not too frequent updates. But in terms of pricing specifically, not the discount aspect of it, the pricing is always we don't price differentiate. Let's say if if you look at at uh, a nissan sunny or something and someone else looks at it it's still going to be the same nissan sunny same monthly price uh but of course there might be scenarios in which we're testing some sort of a promo or some sort of a user interface or and a user experience checkout flow that might be different for you and someone else Um, minor changes that you may not even notice at times uh even if you're sitting side by side and comparing apps but we do, we do kind of test a lot.
0: How do you cheat the system as a customer? How do you cheat the
1: system as a customer? Ooh, that's a tough one. Because, because, see, I used to work in a in a in a non-banking financial company, and I used to work with a lot of incentive programs, right? Like 60, 70 percent of the company's incentives were set up by me. And what we realized is, no matter how flawless the incentive structure is, every two, three months we had to change it because people would start gaming it. That being said, every time we put out something, we try to prevent the gaming aspect of it. But again, people find their way, you know, to to game the system and then of course, we have to put restrictions around it. As a customer personally, how I feel I have, may have sort of gamed the system is, um, I, I took a car for a month and uh, it was around 2.5K per month. And uh, I was just like, month one in, I was like I love this car I'm not gonna change it for a year so I just went in and you know increased my contract length from one year one month to one year and uh, by doing so I save 500 terms per month for example right because uh, I did the math I was like you know even if I don't if, if I travel for a month in and out even if I don't use a car for a month you know 11 month times 2.5 versus you know 12 months times 1.9 I think I save more money so I was just like it's a no-brainer. You know? I'm just going to commit longer to save money.
0: You can tell you're the data guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I try to kind of encourage everyone to think more numbers. I think it makes a decision making much easier overall, so can go quicker in everything that you're doing.
0: In terms of how important data is to you guys to Invigo at the moment, how does it compare for w- when you first started out? Were you using as much? Were you looking at the data as much in the early days compared to now?
1: Oh no, I think earlier stage, the, the good thing is we weren't using the data as much, but it was literally me, Islam, our lead software engineer, and our head of customer experience. There was four of us. We were sitting out of an incubator in five. And and back then we didn't have as sophisticated data, but we would literally pick up the phone and call and speak to people. So the size of data wasn't crazy. The, the structure of the data wasn't amazing, but we got really qualitative feedback, you know. The digital wallet and the whole Posi subscription came through that. And uh, so many features, in our early days, uh, everything came through that, you know, doing those things manually, um, understanding why people leave, why people come back, when they come back. Uh, it was all manual on Excel at that point in time. But now, of course, you know, we have a bunch of dashboards for every team, for at, at some points for every individual, if it helps them do their job better. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's a lot more sophisticated today. It's a lot more in depth, uh, which is also scary in the sense that because there's also this term paralysis by analysis and, you know, you don't want to look at so much data that you go like, okay, I'm confused what my next action is. So it's always, that becomes a challenge when you grow in terms of data and the information that you have. So you're always trying to keep it minimal in terms of what are the actionable insights I can derive from certain data points. So it's much more challenging and much more uh detail today but early stage was also again it was mostly around pricing but uh, the qualitative feedback we got from consumers was really critical
0: do you still go after that qualitative data do you still talk to your customers
1: 100 um, 100 but today it's not like just pick up the phone and call everyone as, as much as it was in the past earlier it was like every per customer who we just just me islam bashir and patrick four of us we just pick up the phone call them. We would do customer service on Saturdays because, of course, Saturdays was a weekend, but, like, you know, we would deliver cars then, so we would figure out, you know, what people are speaking to. So today, also, uh, we kind of identify cohorts of, you know, users, and if there's some interesting thing that's happening or they're doing, let's say we suddenly notice a spike in people swapping and upgrading their cars, right? We'd like to be, like, you know, just check in with them, understand what's happening, why, how, uh, what made them, you know, what's changed in their lives, it kind of it kind of helps us understand consumers better in, in general. And yeah, you can see, you know, sometimes people change their subscription packages, you know, add additional drivers, uh, reduce or increase their mileage offers and whatnot. So sometimes, you know, if we see certain trends, we do pick up the phone and call and understand what's happening.
0: What do you think is the right balance between the qualitative and the quantitative data when it comes to decision-making?
1: I think it's very hard to kind of balance it out, but I think I think where you draw the line is um, speed and accuracy is what you have to kind of eventually measure. So for example, if I can send out a very simple survey, or if I already have data readily available in some form of database, and it just takes some queries or some you know, a data engineer to come in and pull out information, then I might as well go after the quantitative. But if I don't have those answers, I need to go after the qualitative because that will give me the better accuracy, that will give me the better uh, speed, let's say, rather than you know waiting. And the other thing which you can do also is just launch something and test it. Or or we do a lot of false-door tests, for example, wherein you can run this experiment and just see how people react. You know, you haven't collected data in the past, you just have a certain hypothesis that if I do this, this is what's going to happen. And then you see if that's what happened, if it didn't happen, and you know your test was successful or not then you can decide to release that feature to the masses or not you know so of course we test in limited blast radius So you'll I'll never like push a test to everyone unless we're confident that this has worked for a small user user base so yeah I, again these things you asked me two three years ago we didn't know any of these things it's just things that you learn and figure out over time you know hire smart people around yourselves and, and they have to get here
0: I think there's this perception that when you use data or look at data, it's all historic. That is important. But, you know, you're talking about testing and experimenting. How much of that should you do? What else can help with creating data, perhaps creating data points that don't exist in the past?
1: I think that's a great point. I think a few things you can do is just ask people, you know, just be more, let's say, proactive in asking questions. Let's say it, it, it's a survey that we've put out recently, you know, X days after you get a car, we kind of try to understand what your experience has been on that car or with that car or, or in that whole journey. So you're creating that additional data point specifically about the car. So, for example, you know, if you were to look at um, Airbnb reviews, today when you go in, you can see the reviews in terms of location, cleanliness, hosts, experience, check-in, check-out, and stuff like that, right? They, of course, didn't start with those four parameters, uh, but they probably collected a lot of textual data, segmented it, created topics around it, and understood what are topics that are important to a customer. So I think being proactive is important um, in terms of looking at the future, setting up scrapers to understand what the market is doing, setting up uh, tools to see where the market and the trends are moving in terms of everything that people are doing online. Um, sometimes, of course, just having really good industry partners who can also share insights. Not everything in terms of data has to be in a database, right? It, like I said, it can be qualitative. You just pick up the phone and call your friends or you know partners who work in banks, who work in uh rental companies who work in leasing companies their management have a good relationship with them because of course at the end of the day you know if you're not creating a better ecosystem if you're not creating value then what are you really doing so yeah you just have to essentially be proactive
0: with regards to invigo's use of data has it simply been about driving better decision making or has it been used as a tool to drive growth
1: i think i think it's a combination of both i don't think any everything that you do is kind of growth just to kind of, if I were to segment things, there's how do I be very lean and have operational excellence, right? How do I have the best customer experience? How do I manage my risk? And how do I grow my revenue? So I think these are broadly the four areas that you can apply your data to. Um, so it's not just, because, uh, uh, and also majority of the time, what you'll see is many of them are inter interlinked. For example, customer experience might be linked to operations, and if you do that well, you have better retention. So you're managing your risk, and if you're managing your risk better, you have more money to reinvest into your growth. So um, I think it's a combination of everything. You can't just uh, growth, growth, growth. Just leads you to a path where you know you become like this, uh, you know, shoving discounts and shoving random partnerships in people's face, and I don't think, or 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 just forcefully driving value where there isn't any. I don't think we do. We we are going down that path and I don't think we want to. We just want to figure out. It it has to be more holistic. It can't be just just bombarding one thing.
0: Going back to consumer trends during the pandemic, I think there was a rise in the need for private vehicles and to avoid uh, public transport. But we've seen around the world this drive towards sustainability, protecting the planet. How do you think that's going to impact car ownership and how does it affect startups like yourselves?
1: That's a good question. I think, um, so we do love the idea of EVs and I think that is the future. We all are in agreement of that. The problem though is that the infrastructure, the the supply chain is not where it needs to be for reaching the masses. That's one part of it. And the second is they're just expensive, right? Um, the cheapest Tesla Model 3 is around 175,000 dirhams. That is not the most affordable price point, which makes it very exciting for us going back to, we can break this down and uh, make it into a simple monthly payment right and it kind of goes back into reducing the carbon you know carbon emission offset and 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 eventually kind of helping the government's sustainability goals so yes we have our eyes and we are looking at partnerships um, to get that done but again like anything right whenever there's something kind of as disruptive as evs or you know having Better public transportation. The infrastructure needs to come first, then, then the adoption comes. So we're seeing that already. There's positive trends, and yeah, uh, we will see. We will see more movement towards EVs in the next five years or so. And and I think for us, it's again, we want to be the platform that makes EVs more accessible.
0: And, and do you think that the the desire for car ownership is now shifting back to the trend that was happening before, where people would rather lease and use cars on demand?
1: I think people are more aware than before. People don't want to commit as much. Yes, there, you will see artificial increases in ownership for a little bit because just the demand shot up so much, right? The Expo and a million things that are happening here in our own region, and a lot of people not spending as much as on travel as they did before. Um, it's still again by demand shot up i mean like to to the lower levels of the t- teens and 2018s again it's not like the 2012 levels for example 2012 2013 market was at peak. since then it's been in, in, a, in a decline for ownership um and the behavioral change that's come and uh, you know the social inclusion that comes with something like a subscription-based model even for cars uh, it's got massive tailwinds, it's happening across other industries too and uh, we see the adoption rate of subscription going up to even 25 or 30 percent in our region because financial inclusion is poor Um, in other regions it could go up to around 15-20 percent of new car sales so again the market is just huge and, and the demand is also there we just need to we just need to keep chipping away, keep keep moving towards that, uh, kind of like I said, right, as the infrastructure improves, the adoption rate will improve.
0: Since you guys launched, there's been a whole barrage of new startups that are in the space, whether it's leasing for short term, whether it's on demand, you go in and, and hire a car for a half an hour, an hour, and we're seeing a lot of growth in Saudi as well. So how has the landscape changed? How are you competing? Is the market big enough for all these different types of apps? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. I think First part is, yes, of course, the market is definitely big enough, but, uh, and we welcome competition, copycats, everything. You know, we've had one of the startups literally copy our apps screen by screen, and it was hilarious. It was a massive compliment to us because this startup had raised, I think, eight times the amount of money that we had, and yet they're coming in just copying our app screen by screen. So it was a massive compliment to all the work that we have done. And interesting, they did, they did have this, you know, pay per hour kind of a model, and then the question is why shift from that? Of course, there's massive capex involvement in those kind of businesses with, you know, what are you really going after, right? Because if you know you're competing, those hourly minute by business minute minute-wise businesses are competing with public transportation, with daily rentals, and with ride hailing. When you come towards replacing car ownership, it's a very different experience. It's your own car. You know, you don't go from point A to point B and then suddenly you just have to walk a kilometer in the bias heat to kind of find your car, right? It's very different. And um, yeah, other people want to do it too. I mean, again, going back to, you know, they are on our app, like I said, we track everything. We know who they are, we know them sitting on our app, testing our checkout flows, trying X, Y, Z. For us, the key focus is, as long as we are the front runners, the largest, and keep driving value back to consumers, we will capture the segment much faster than anyone else can. But uh, yeah, we honestly, we like and we welcome competition. It influences us the right.
0: All right, Paul Keat, thank you so much for your time.
1: You're welcome. Oh, it was wonderful to talking to you.
0: Thanks to Paul Keat, and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider. <laughs>